Every team, every topic, everywhere. This is Believe. Welcome to the Everything USC podcast on the Believe Podcast Network, Los Angeles' number one sports podcast network, the only place with the show for every team in LA and so much more. We believe in our teams. Do you believe? I'm Nara Wang, and in episode 36 of the Everything USC podcast, my guest is the recipient of the inaugural Louisiana Sports Hall of Fame Ambassador Award as a part of that hall's 2020 class of inductees who finally had their enshrinement ceremony this past June after it was delayed a year by the COVID-19 pandemic. I am, of course, referring to the Fox Sports play-by-play broadcaster Tim Brando, who will be calling the Stanford-USC game this week on Fox alongside Spencer Tillman. Timmy B., it's great to have you back on the show. Great to be with you, and let me also say how excited I am to finally get to do a Trojans game in the Coliseum. You know, I have oftentimes mentioned, for those that follow me on Twitter and other forms of social media, that One of the things that really gets me excited about what I do is that I've always felt like I had a lot of wood to chop because I'd spent so much time in the studio throughout my career that a lot of people probably did not know that I'd never got a college football game at the Coliseum. Now, I say college football game because long before you were born, the USFL played in the Coliseum. Oh, I was born. I was born. (laughs) I remember the USFL. Okay, well. Steve Young, LA Express. And against the Denver Gold in 1985 was my first year at ESPN. I was 29 years old. I think there were about as many vendors as there were fans that day. The league was about to fold. And Marv Levy, long before we knew he was going to be a Buffalo Bills Hall of Fame, four-time Super Bowl, finalist never to win one but go into the hall of fame marv was my analyst and uh, we worked about a half dozen games together and i did that game but i have not been into the cavernous stadium that is the coliseum for a nighttime full treatment usc style so the optics are so beautiful when you watch a game and frankly i can't wait to get in the new booth you know they've spent a lot of money in renovating that place since i was there so I'm thrilled. And Spencer Tillman, I should add, has played in the Coliseum as a pro football player for nine years. He played there when he was uh, with the 49ers and won a Super Bowl in 1990. He also played, I believe, as a Houston Oiler, but he's never called a game there either. So we're like two kids in a candy store coming in there. That's pretty amazing. I've called more games in the Coliseum then than Tim Brando and Spencer Tillman (laughs) since I was there as a collegian calling games for the student radio station. So you got a little ways to catch up with me then still on that. But you do get to experience the new press box. I haven't been in the new press box, so that'll be great for you. And of course, if you enjoy listening to the Everything USC podcast, you can subscribe, download, and rate it wherever you get your favorite podcasts, whether it's iTunes, Spotify, Google, Stitcher, Luminary, TuneIn, and more, or go right to the website, Believe.com, B-L-E-A-V.com, or on social media, you can find us at Believe Podcast. For me directly, I am on Twitter. You can reach out to me at Nara Wang Sports, N-A-R-A-W-E-N-G Sports. Tim Brando, where can people catch up with you on social media? I'm really trying to build up my Instagram platform. So at Timmy B on Fox on Instagram, Nara, and you can always find me at Tim Brando on Twitter. I've got a lot to say most weeks. I've had a lot to say about what's going on in college football, and especially when it comes to the ever-changing landscape changing with realignment and the college football playoff expansion and the connection between those two stories how they are connected so for people who just love college football that are you know dying to get more college football information i'm always going to be weighing in on the issues of the day there so that's where you need to go the everything usc podcast is brought to you by bet online it's that time of year again and all eyes are now turning to football as teams are back on the gridiron to start the season as always, Bet Online is your number one spot for all the pro and college football action. Get all the updated odds, props, and contests, including online's biggest half million dollar NFL mega contest and the world's largest $200,000 NFL survivor contest. Open now 
at Bet Online. Head to the website or use your mobile device to sign up today and receive your 100% welcome bonus. Bet Online is the fastest and easiest way to bet all your favorite sports. Bet Online, your online sportsbook experts. The Everything USC podcast is also brought to you by Balance 7. So I don't know if you heard, but former NBA player Lamar Odom may be returning to pro basketball in Spain soon. Apparently, he's going to try out for Pau Gasol's team. He's been taking a new product he owes the credit to called Balance 7, which is a pH-balancing alkaline supplement drink. It's like vitamins or supplements in liquid form. Just one ounce a day, three times a day, and in a week, you'll see the effects. As we get older, all of us, especially athletes like Lamar, who experienced a lot of wear and tear on their bodies playing pro sports, are looking for products that can keep the body working at a high level. That's where Balance 7 comes in. You can see how Balance 7 has helped. And right now, if you go to balance7.com and use the promo code BELIEVE, you'll get $10 off their 32-ounce bottle. The bottle lasts 11 days, which is the perfect amount of time to feel the pH-balancing drink go to work. Again, that's balance7.com and use the code BLEAV at checkout. If it worked for Lamar, it can work for you too. When you look at the final score of USC's season opening win over San Jose State, 37, you might think it was an easy, stress-free game for the Trojans. But if you actually watch the game, you know that it was just another in a long line of games where the Trojans failed to capitalize on early opportunities to build a big lead, being up only 10-0 after the first quarter and just 13-zip at halftime leaving the outcome in doubt into the fourth quarter before finally pulling away from an opponent it should have put away much earlier. SC had four drives into the red zone during the game and came away with just one touchdown out of them, settling for field goals on the other three trips. If it weren't for Drake London's career-high 12 catches for 137 yards and a strong defensive performance, intercepting Spartan quarterback Nick Starkle twice, the first by Drake Jackson getting converted into a Taj Washington touchdown catch, and the other returned for a touchdown by Greg Johnson, who knows if the Trojans would have avoided the same fate suffered by some of their Pac-12 conference brethren who took embarrassing defeats in Week 1. Tim Brando, how do you feel about the Trojans coming out of that opener? Well, the good news is the defense got the takeaways. The other good news is that they were able to make big plays with the defense. It's one thing to get turnovers, and I know that's something that Todd Orlando, the new D.C., wants to accomplish. But in addition to that, to take it to the house, as Johnson did, I mean, that was the back-breaking play of the game. And last year, I had the Mountain West championship game and Starkle he's a super senior he's been around and they rattled him some that defense and that's not an easy thing to do so that's the good news really for USC you're right though the game does not if you watch it the score is not at all indicative of the way the game played out and I'm sure there's still a lot of Trojans fans that are very upset with you know the addition of a guy like Ingram to go along with Malapai, you're going to have to help me here. I'll be, I'll be good by... Um, Malapai. Malapai. Malapai, yeah. I'll, I'll have it right by Saturday night. <laughs> with Ingram to go with Malapai, you would have thought that the ground game would have just chewed them up. And, uh, you know, it was a representative performance by both on the ground. I think Ingram had 86 yards on 15 carries and Malapai 65 on 14. But, you know, they didn't dominate the line of scrimmage the way you would have maybe hoped that they could. Now they've got the two young tackles in their offensive front and they were going up against uh, veteran players for San Jose state, good players, guys that could play in the PAC 12. But, you know, I thought that some of the problems for USC were a byproduct of just not controlling the line of scrimmage the way they would want to control it. And I think that, With these backs to go along with the air raid offense, the question becomes about balance for Graham and getting all the yards that you know you can get out of Malapai in Ingram. But at the same time, you know, you got game breakers out there with Drake London and Taj Washington. You got guys that can make big time plays, explosive plays in the passing game. 
So to a certain extent, I think we get caught up now in, you know, first week performances. And this was a challenging game to play in week one. San Jose State is, it's a group of five program with power five talent in a lot of ways. And they're a veteran team. So I wouldn't be too high or too low about what happened if I were a USC fan. I, I think that you're going to see a much better Stanford team than the one we saw at Jerry World last week, too. You know, they're not going to be as bad as they were against Kansas State. And you just have to know that. David Shaw's not going to allow it. So I think you'll see a completely different complexion to the game than maybe a lot of fans anticipate based on what we saw in week one for both teams. Yeah, I think you're right on that. And I think just some of the frustration for USC fans is they seem to be seeing the same story over and over yeah. in this Clay Helton regime. And the other thing, too, like you said, the numbers seem pretty good for Ingram and Malapai, but a lot of that was done before they got into the red zone. Once they got into the red zone, either they just tried to pass it or they were unable to run. And Keaton Slovis, really a pedestrian game for him, 24 of 36 for mm-hmm. 256 yards and two touchdowns. And like you said, though, it was all about the D for USC in week number one. They harass San Jose State quarterback Nick Starkle into a 24-46 day. He did go over 300 yards, a lot of that coming late, but through the two picks. And what a performance by true freshman safety Kalen Bullock, who gets the start for the senior captain Isaiah Polamau after he had to go out due to COVID, and Bullock leads the Trojans in tackles with eight. He's the first freshman safety to start for USC since Sua Cravens back in 2013, and crazily enough, Sua Cravens was the alum who was picked to lead the Trojans out of the tunnel running onto the field pregame, and is now, of course, a radio broadcaster on the sideline for USC as well on football games so just an amazing coincidence there and Drake Jackson had that interception on the screen pass in San Jose State's second possession but he suffered a thigh contusion and was kind of in and out for the rest of the game Greg Johnson of course with that big touchdown return on the interception in the fourth quarter which like you said gave USC the cushion at 23-7 to have the momentum really to finish the Spartans off and We'll see if they can keep that up this week. But as I do every week during football season, I run on Twitter the Helton Hot Seat Scale where the Trojan fans can get out and vote to say how hot Clay Helton's seat really is. And it's based on four chili peppers. The hottest is the Carolina Reaper at 2.2 million Scoville heat units, followed by Ghost Pepper at just over a million and then Habanero at 350,000 SHU, and then finally Cayenne, 50,000 Scoville heat units. So you get to rank it on the spicy scale, and the results this week, Carolina Reaper winning the vote with 40%, Ghost Pepper had 25%, Cayenne at 20%, and Habanero at 15%. So once again, after... The preseason poll that had Carolina Reaper at 50%, it's still in the lead at 40%. So I've got to ask you, compared to when we talked last year going into that UCLA game where USC was undefeated and it's a pandemic-shortened season, so you can't really do anything about a head coach who's doing well, basically. How do you feel about Helton's job security this year compared to last year? You know, again, on the basis of performance, it gets watered down to some extent now because of the Pac-12 really not being a factor last year in so many ways. I mean, when you look at Oregon being the champion of the league and they only played the games that they played, it's just hard not to look at anything that happened really in the Pac-12 and to some extent the Big Ten as well as anything other than a one-off year. You know, I don't think you really take anything away from 2020. What I do see and feel and hear whenever I'm talking with anyone close to USC, and I'll be spending a lot of time at Heritage Hall with them. At the time of this taping, it's Thursday. I'll I'll be with them all day Friday. And during the game, I believe we'll be able to probably tell you that the issues there seem to be like an elephant in the room and no one's really discussing it, but the elephant is there. 
that's what I keep hearing. And uh, I'll be interested at how candid Clay is. I mean, I've known him a long time. Spencer actually played for his dad. He was an assistant with the owners when Spencer was playing. So we've got a good relationship with him. And I'm just going to be curious to see if understanding the circumstances in terms of being hands-on with what's going on within his own program is where they are. It sounds as though from the outside in that there's a continual soap operas taking place with regard to, you know, who's really the steward here. That's my takeaway. I don't know. It sounds a little bit like what was going on at Texas before Sarkeesian got there. And Spencer and I were both there last week for that game when Texas beat Louisiana in the opener. And there's absolutely no denying that this version of Steve Sarkeesian is going to be different in every way imaginable that the time spent in coaching exile as a head coach did him a lot of good and that he will be governing this program because the problem at Texas has always been that there were just too many chiefs, too many donors, too many people with too much influence, whether it was financial or just with power, too much power for any athletic director, for any head coach, And we've seen, obviously, the ADs in and out of USC left and right in the last handful of years since Pete Carroll left. So my thoughts on just how hot the seat might be, really, I won't know until after I'm there and I've spent some time to see the countenance and the atmosphere and how glib or transparent, if you will, Clay is. In the past, he's always been that way with me. I've always had really good conversations with him always felt like I got the information that I needed to do my job. But, you know, again, those that are out here on a more regular basis will tell you all kinds of stories about, you know, what's missing, how he can't be hands-on because, you know, he really has nothing to do with what's going on with the offense. I hear that. And I know Graham Harrell is a wonder kid and people believe he's got a tremendous future in the air raid. And I've known Graham since he played, but it will be interesting to see because To me, when you look at the pieces here with the running backs and the talent, you can deviate some from a formation standpoint and give some of the fans here what they want. What they want is a little bit of student body left, student body right, and a little bit of power football. And when you're not getting it done in the red zone, which they didn't again last week, that is a byproduct of not being able to line up and physically beat people. You know, you're spreading the field. And when you lose yards to work with inside the 20 in the red zone, it becomes more difficult to get the plays that you want to run in the middle of the field to be effective to run when the field is squeezing down on you. That's when you call in the heavies. And uh, I know the alumni base here all want to be able on third and one to see a quarterback get under center, hand off to someone that's in the backfield, either dotting the eye or in a power eye formation and jamming the ball down the teeth of the defense. And until they see that, they're not going to be happy. Well, they're not going to see that. I mean, in in the Graham Harrell air raid, nothing is taken from under center. And so that's part of the issue. I totally agree. And so we're going to see if those red zone issues can be fixed because that's been a running theme. And we'll see if Clay Helton... If he continues to win, I mean, that's the bottom line. He keeps winning, he'll be okay. But if he doesn't, then that's when the issues will come in. So I'll look forward to hearing what you have to say after getting to meet with the team and spend the day with them tomorrow when you are broadcasting the game on Saturday. Again, I am joined today on the Everything USC podcast by Tim Brando, the play-by-play broadcaster for Fox Sports, who will be on the call along with Spencer Tillman for this weekend's Stanford-USC game. And if you enjoy listening to this podcast, you can subscribe, download, and rate it wherever you get your favorite podcasts or go right to the website, Believe.com, B-L-E-A-V.com, on social media, at Believe Podcast. To connect with me on social media, I'm on Twitter. Follow me at Nara Wang Sports, N-A-R-A-W-E-N-G Sports. Tim Brando, where can everyone find you? At Tim Brando on Twitter, at Timmy B on Fox on Instagram.
Hi, this is Mike Yam, studio host for Pac-12 Radio on Sirius XM Radio, and you're listening to the Everything USC podcast with Dara Wang on the Believe Podcast Network. And now let us take a look at the game this Saturday night between the Stanford Cardinal and the USC Trojans. It will be broadcast starting at 7.30 p.m. Pacific time on Fox and locally on radio KABC 790 AM. Just a warning for everyone who wants to watch it on Fox, it's going to be following a Yankees-Mets baseball game. So there's a pretty good chance, I think, Tim, that the beginning of the game may not be seen on Fox by a lot of people because that baseball game, I'm sure, is just going to run long and into the football broadcast. So they may have to go streaming it or on the app and figure out another way to watch it before the game is over in New York. In the past, when those situations pop up, and it is a, you're right, three-hour window, you know, maybe we'll get a pitcher's duel and be okay. But in the past, what they've done is they'll put graphics up telling people where they can find it. And, you know, again, I can't speak for programming, but in the past, either you would find it on FS2 or FS1. It would be somewhere, okay? Besides streaming, they would probably have it on one of their alternate channels that's available to them. But in any case, When it's close to game time, within, say, 10 to 15 minutes of the start, and if you're watching Joe Buck and John Smoltz, there'll be graphics up on the screen letting you know where you can find it before they join us in progress. You know, it is interesting because this is the sort of cherry on top to what is a full day of sports on the 20th anniversary of 911. We start with Ohio State and Oregon in big noon, followed by Colorado hosting Texas A&M then the Mets-Yankees, and this will be, for us, the latest game that Fox, the -the over-the-air network Fox, not FS1, the first time ever a Pac-12 game started at 10.30 East Coast time, 9.30 Central and 7.30. So we've had a lot of late-night delight, you know, Pac-12 after darks on FS1, but never on Fox. I think it's kind of cool. I really do, because it's a commemorative day, a day that – um everyone's reflecting upon but you know also a day when maybe sports can make people feel a little bit better so we're really happy to be a part of that yep you get to be the nightcap for a big day of sports on the fox network and the opponent stanford had definitely a worse week than usc as like you mentioned they lost to kansas state in arlington 24 7 last week and Stanford last year finished 4-2. and two. They only played one home game, which was a loss to Colorado, and all of their games, other than their season-opening loss at Oregon, were decided by five points or less. And so maybe that kind of masked some of the issues that they had in terms of personnel coming into the season where they're going to have to play 12 Power 5 teams if they play every game as scheduled this season. And no one has had a schedule like that since... 2011, not counting, of course, last year's pandemic year when USC in 2011 played a full Power 5 slate. And of course, David Shaw, though, one of the best coaches around in his 11th year as a 90 and 37 overall record, 62 and 25 in Pac-12 games, USC leading the all-time series officially 63 wins, 33 losses, and three ties. That doesn't include the vacated 2005 games. So By official records, this is going to be the 100th meeting in this series that dates back to 1905, making Stanford USC's oldest rival. But in actual games played, it's actually going to be number 101. They didn't play last year, of course, because of the pandemic. And that was the first time that happened since 1945 in World War II. So the last game was in 2019. USC beat a number 23-ranked Stanford team in the Coliseum, 45-20, to 20, and that was when Keaton Slovis came in and made his first career start after JT Daniels had gotten hurt in the season opener of the week before, and Slovis made a big impression right away, 377 yards in the air and three touchdown passes. So Stanford against Kansas State, you know that Stanford likes to run the ball. They were unable to do that. They got only 62 yards on 18 carries once you take out the four sacks for 23 yards. And then they got gashed by the Wildcats on the ground, 200 yards rushing to K-State. Even 
after the 21 yards in sacks is taken out. Deuce Vaughn going for 124 himself on just 13 carries, including a 59-yard TD run in that one. So based on what you saw out of Stanford last week, you think that they're in line for an improvement this week. And of course, it's a big rivalry against SC. But that was an ugly performance last week by Stanford. How do they turn that around? Yeah, you know, Nara, they have had really bad games coming out of the gates. They've had really ugly first week games the last couple of years. And look, David's a hell of a coach and their team always gets better systematically. But, you know, he's he's a long way removed now from those three straight 11 win seasons, you know, that helped him become coach of the year four different times between 2011 and 2017. I mean, he had three Pac-12 titles, five Pac-12 North Division titles, and was really a dominant power in the league. It's someone you could count on to prop up the Pac-12, even when maybe the rest of the league was struggling. I don't know that that's the case right now. They don't have, you know, that explosive player. At least, you know, we haven't seen that player yet that would stretch any defense to enable their run game to get going in the West Coast offense that David likes to run. Now, he's got complementary backs that are a committee. You know, Jones, Emmett's son, E.J. Smith. The youngster, Pete, seems to have, you know, some giddy-up about his game. And even the youngster that's got some real quickness, Casey Filkins, they're using a little bit in the backfield and in special teams. They are known, as you well know, as being really an absolute fixture for great offensive lines and they were giving up some sacks and that wasn't pretty against k-state now the big problem starts at quarterback and they were going with both jack west and tanner mckee and i thought in watching the game that their offense just never got past having the plays for losses early on first down and they got behind the chains most of that game I think in Tanner McKee, they know he's the future, the sophomore from Corona, California. So they're making the move this week to go ahead. It didn't take Shaw long to say that it would be McKee's ball to start this game. They're trying to mix it up a little bit every now and then when they go with a wildcat look and they get the youngster that's a grad transfer from uh, Air Force, Josiah Sanders, in to run some of that. But listen, you know what you're going to get with Stanford. No one's going to try to trick anybody here. They're running what they run. They are a, you know, play action pass West Coast offensive team, always looking to get their tight ends involved. They usually feature a big time back. And we're waiting to see who that's going to be. Bryson Tremaine is the go-to receiver. He had a five-catch, 62-yard performance in the loss, also from right here in Los Angeles. But again, I'm looking for someone to show me that they've got breakaway speed, sprinter speed that can make USC defensively play honest because what happened with Kansas State was they just stacked a lot of guys in the box. They knew that in Jack West, they had a guy that really did not have a, you know, the ability to get away from pressure. So, you know, he was sacked twice. McKee was sacked twice. McKee is the more efficient passer. And I think that's the reason for two reasons. One, he's more efficient in passing the ball. And number two, he is the future. You know, he needs reps. All these guys are older, and McKee's no different. He's a sophomore in eligibility, but he's up there in age. He spent two years on a mission before even enrolling at Stanford. So, you know, these guys are grown men. We know that. Anytime you play Stanford, you're playing against, even if they haven't had a lot of experience on the field, they've had a lot of experience in life. I think it's a matchup that's going to be very intriguing and one that usually has favored USC because they've had the more explosive player that could give them big plays. That's what happened in the last meeting when Slovis had sort of his coming out party in replacing JT Daniels, as you mentioned. And um, it doesn't hurt that you've got guys, you know, like London and like Washington, and even a guy like KD Nixon that can make some big plays in the pass game for you. You get that going to go along with the two backs that I mentioned that I think have a great chance to be successful. And you could have a a really well-balanced offense, even though we know the air raid is about getting rid of the ball, getting it out quickly and uh, stretching defenses horizontally and vertically. 
the quickness advantage should be with USC. The big time explosive talent to make big explosive plays should be with USC. But Stanford has a way of making you conform to their style of play, which if they can get control of the game, enables them to shorten the game in some ways where you won't have as many possessions as you might normally have. In Kansas State last week, they went up against another version of themselves. Kansas State goes with 12 personnel, brings two tight ends in. They pound it, they pound it, and Deuce Vaughn's a little guy that found some holes in the teeth of the Stanford defense and made some very big plays. But that's not how USC's offense runs, as you well know. So that's what's going to be interesting to me, Nara, is to see if even in this offense that we know is air raid, how much will USC attack the Stanford front and force them to stop the run? Because they had a very difficult time stopping it against Kansas State last week. Right. And we'll see what kind of defense coverages Stanford puts out there against this air raid. I want to throw out a few stats on these offensive guys that you brought up. Jack West, the senior, 8 of 12, 76 yards, two picks, not a good performance. Tanner McKee came in and was better, 15 of 18, 118 yards, and a touchdown. And another note about McKee, you mentioned he's from Corona. He went to Corona Centennial along with Drake Jackson and Corey Foreman, two of the guys who were going to be trying to chase him down on Saturday. And the running back, Junior Austin Jones, had a big year in that shortened season last year, 550 yards, nine touchdowns, which led the Pac-12. But he only had 25 yards on nine carries. He did have four catches for 30 yards in that week one loss against K-State. And you brought up the offensive line. On the left side, they have some experience. Left tackle Walter Rouse and left guard Barrett Miller both have at least 15 career starts each. But their center, Drake Nugent, and right tackle, Miles Hinton, both made their first career start last week. Now, both have good bloodlines. Their fathers both played in the NFL. Miles' dad, the offensive lineman, Chris Hinton, who went to seven Pro Bowls in 13 seasons with the Colts, Falcons, and Vikings, maybe most famous for being part of that John Elway trade to the Broncos as he was the fourth overall pick in 1983 and the Broncos and Colts made that swap. Nugent's dad, Terry, was a quarterback who played in one game in that 1987 strike season for the Colts. And then when you flip it to the defensive side of the ball, you've got some experience. Senior defensive end Thomas Booker, a team captain, a 2020 second-team All-Pac-12 defensive player, first-team All-Pac-12 special teamer, and he had three tackles against The Wildcats, 102 career tackles, 16 of them for a loss, eight and a half sacks, and two block kicks in his Stanford career. There's a six-year super senior outside linebacker, Jordan Fox, another team captain. He had a couple of tackles against K-State. The leading tackler in the game for Stanford was actually senior inside linebacker, Ricky Miazon, and junior cornerback, Caillou Blue Kelly, a 2020 All-Pac-12 honorable mention. Had an interception and two tackles against Kansas State. But most notably, he is the son of former USC and NFL cornerback Brian Kelly, a guy who was in school at the exact same time I was at USC. So I remember his dad fondly from my days at USC, but now the son is playing for Stanford. And on special teams, their sophomore kicker, Joshua Carty, has still not attempted a field goal in his career. He had just the one PAT try against Kansas State. So when you look at that personnel, like you said, on offense, it seems to be lacking a little bit of explosion. They're going to hope that the change to the sophomore quarterback can make it more efficient, maybe get the running game going. And on defense, they're going to have to find a way to stop the high-powered air raid offense. So Let's look at what USC, the 14th ranked team in the country in both the coaches and AP poll this week, what did they have to do to get a win? I'm looking at three things. I think they need to get off to a fast start, which is not just settling for field goals early. And that's partly my second point is that if they're in the red zone, they got to convert touchdowns. They can't be settling for field goals. And then three, put pressure on Tanner McKee, the young guy getting his start in this game in his home area, I think you can try and put some pressure on him. What are you looking for? What USC needs to do to get a win? 
Well, I think you're spot on with getting off to a fast start. Stanford is not a team that you want to get behind against. They're smart. Now, they turned it over more than they usually would against K-State, and they were fortunate in that regard. USC was also fortunate that San Jose State you know, turned it over to them. But they were opportunistic, though, and they made them pay for it. Stanford, as I said, is a very smart team that can lull you into playing their tempo. And that means not as many opportunities. If they can control the football on the ground, bring in an extra tight end and dink and dunk the USC defense, keep them off balance, move the chains. I don't see a lot of big plays for Stanford. I don't see that many big playmakers for Stanford. You know, there's no Bryce Love back there. It's just going to take off unless we see something that we're told, you know, either Smith or Jones or Pete can pull off that we have as yet to see. All right. If it's in there, we haven't seen it yet. I'm going to say USC wants to force them to show them that they can run the football. All right. So don't allow them to run roughshod. You know, they're going to be king on the run game because neither of these quarterbacks, whether it's McKee, who's, you know, a youngster trying to get his feet wet. Granted, he's got better stats than Jack West, but neither one of them are tremendously mobile. So, Force Stanford to play with one hand tied behind their back. Force them to run because I don't know that there's anyone out there that's going to scare these DBs for USC. So, yeah, get a lead early. I think the other thing that you want to be able to do is consistently get your passing game downfield, not just quick outs, but some seam routes that are down the field where Slovis is really, really effective. You know, he came on really strong when he first burst onto the scene for JT because he could get the ball vertically down the field. He threw the seam route really well. That's a fun route to run. It's a picturesque play for fans to enjoy. And they should have the skilled people to give the Stanford secondary a hard time. So I'm thinking, get a quick lead. Make sure you force Stanford to play faster than they want to play. And at the same time, win the big ticket plays of the day. You know, if you have more plays of 20 yards or more than the opposition, you're generally going to win games unless you turn it over too much. And I think USC will have, let's say, four or five more plays of greater than 20 yards from the line of scrimmage. And that doesn't matter whether it's a pass or a run. It just means a gain from scrimmage that a coach would call an explosive play. Explosive plays generally are 20 yards or more in college football. So those two things jump out at me as it relates to, you know, how USC could win this game and the formula for keeping Stanford on their heels. Yeah, I think we're going to look forward to seeing maybe some more deep shots out of USC. Obviously, Drake London is the big weapon. He's the guy that Keaton Slovis has the most familiarity with. He's still getting to know most of the other receivers. They're either freshmen or transfers into the program, and they're moving Drake a lot this season outside, inside slot. And so before, he was always just in the slot and was great at that seam route. Now they're moving him around, so hopefully other guys are going to step up and be able to take his place if he is lined up outside. Well, don't you, don't you think, though, too, Nara, if you're looking at the film, if you're Graham Harrell, even though you know with your offense – what you're going to do. How can you not look at what Deuce Vaughn did and not say to Malapai and to Keontae Ingram, you're going to get your chances. I'm with you. I'm with you on that. I think they have to figure out a way to run the ball more effectively, especially once they get close to the end zone. And I know some of that is that they've given Keaton Slovis more free reign to call audibles at the line this year, obviously being in his third year in the system. They trust him more now, and we'll see if Keaton can make those correct reads as well based on what the Stanford D is showing him. But you're right. I think that the USC running game can be effective, and it was fairly effective between the 20s against San Jose State. The key is to get it done inside the 20, and we'll see if Stanford is going to be able to stop that or not. So now it's time to put the money where our mouth is it's time for that always fun predictions segment that we have on the show where 
We pick three things, the players we believe in, the best Trojan player of the game, the game score, and a prop bet that we come up with that we're guaranteeing is going to happen no matter how improbable it might be. But first, I have to recap how I did last week. My guess, of course, last week was the former USC and NFL offensive lineman, Super Bowl champ, Derek Deese, whose son, of course, Derek Deese Jr., is the tight end for the San Jose State Spartans. So in the players we believe in, we both took a Drake. I went with Drake Jackson, and it was looking good really early with that interception in the second possession, but then he got slowed by the thigh injury, and Derek took Drake London, the career-high 12 catches, 137 yards, so Derek will take the win in that category. In the game score, I went USC 41-30. Derek, going with the family ties, went with San Jose State in an upset 42-35. And of course, USC winning it 30-7 gets me the win there. And so it came down to the prop bet. The double down with the Deezer, which was a great name for his prop bet, he said that a running back would rush for at least 150 yards. The leading carrier on the day was Keontae Ingram with 86 yards, so he obviously didn't get his. But I said a defensive or special teams touchdown will be scored, and Greg Johnson came through for me in the fourth quarter with his 37 yard interception return touchdown. So I take the lead in the predictions tracker 2 1 over my guess with that. And so now it's time for me and Tim Brando to go at it. First, the players we believe in and For me this week, I know what you're saying, so I'm going with it. I'm going with Keontae Ingram as the player I believe in for this week's game against the Stanford Cardinal. Tim Brando, who do you got as the player you believe in for USC? I'm going to go with Drake London. Why why not? I'm going to ride the horse that was yours last time out. I don't see anyone in the secondary for Stanford that can hang with this guy. You know, he's so physical and has the ability to I think now that he gave up basketball and he's really concentrating, you know, on football, had an entire spring to really get ready. This guy is going to be, you know, you feed and fan this big fella as much as you possibly can. And I think Keaton and he have a real good relationship. So he's not only a dynamic receiver, he's a chain moving receiver. You know, he's a sure handed receiver. So I'm going to go with Drake London on the offensive side for USC. Yeah, I might just lose every time if I don't pick Drake London because he's just so good. (laughs) And if everyone is going to take Drake London against me, I may not win the players that we believe in (laughs) at any point this season. But we'll see. I think think they're going to try and run the ball. So that's why I'm going with Keontae Ingram. You left me an opening, so I had to go. I I did. I'm leaving people (laughs) openings, basically, by not taking Drake London. And now we got to pick the game score. And unfortunately, I know since you're calling the game, policy means that you can't pick a game score and a winner because people think that that means you're going to be biased in the call, which it is what it is. So I'm basically looking at this to be maybe a way to take advantage of that and (laughs) take the lead or take an extra point on it. So my pick, and just again, for entertainment purposes, we got to let you know that the line on bet online, which is a sponsor of this show, of course, is that USC is a 17 point favorite as we record this on a Thursday night. And I don't see USC covering. Once again, I was wrong on week one when I didn't have them covering, but I think that Stanford's going to play them tough. I think it's going to be a USC win, but it's going to be 30-20 USC, a 10-point win for the Trojans. And here's the deal I'm going to make with you, Tim. Since you're not allowed to make a pick, if the Trojans don't cover... I won't take credit for the win on this pick. Oh, okay. I think okay. that'll make that. That's fair, right? Well, because since yeah, you can't make a pick, I need to at yeah, least yeah, and, get a USC win without a cover. And you've put me in a catch 22 because, you know, I can't root for either team. However, as a broadcaster, I do root for a good game. So if it's a close game, we might keep a few of those viewers on the East Coast up a little later. So I'm, I'm down with that. So I think that's a fair way to do it since yeah. you're not allowed to actually make the pick. Yeah. So now it comes to our prop bet. Mine, of course, is called Nara's No Doubter. I hit on week one. We usually don't hit many of these because they're usually random, but I got mine, so I'm going to try and keep it going. Nara's No Doubter, week two, USC versus Stanford. There will be at least two missed field goals in this game. Ooh. This is very random. This is very out there, but the late night game... 
You got an inexperienced kicker for the Cardinal. I think there will be a combined by both teams, at least two missed field goals in this game. So Tim Brando, first, I need the name for your prop bet. And then what are you going with? I'm going to go with Pac-12 Pilfers past midnight on the East Coast. I'm going to go with no fewer than three interceptions in the game, and two of those will go to one team. And the winning team will have two picks. Two interceptions minimum for the winning team and three overall. But I'm calling it pilfering because I think looking at both of these teams, the way they like to play, they are truly waiting on the other team to help them by making the mistakes to lose a game. And even though McKee is a, was efficient last week, he's going to get a lot of pressure in this game. And I think USC will force him into a couple of turnovers. They had a couple of interceptions, and as you mentioned, one for the pick six that put the game away by Greg Johnson. I, I see that happening again. I don't know who will do the intercepting, but I think we'll have three in the game and uh, a minimum of two for the winning team. All right. So you're going with three interceptions in the game and two will be by the winning team. Right. All right. And then we're calling it Pac-12 Pilfers After Midnight. Is that what yeah. we're going with? Yeah, yeah. Pa- after Dark. You after know, Dark. All right. Pac-12 Pilfers. Pac-12 Pilfers After Dark. After yeah. Dark. All right. <laughs> I, I like it. I like it. So we both going out there on a limb with what we're going with. But yeah. obviously it's fun to see if it happens. And you're right. If the turnover story holds true, USC, if they can get the turnover margin advantage, they are likely to win the game. They've been doing it over the past couple seasons. They had a turnaround and turnover margin in 2020, and obviously they had the turnover margin win against the Spartans. So we'll see if that happens. So to recap the predictions, the players we believe in, I am going to go with the running back, the transfer from Texas, Keontae Ingram, Tim Brando, taking the easy way out with the wide receiver, <laughs> Drake London. In the game score, Tim's not allowed to make a pick. I'm going to go 30-20, USC winning by 10. And then in our prop bet, Nara's no doubter is that there will be at least two missed field goals in the game on Saturday night. And Tim's Pac-12 pilfers after dark, there will be three INTs total in the game. Two will be made by the winning team. So that's what you have to look forward to as you're watching the game. See if we're right on our predictions. And again, if you decide to use them for any bets you might do on your own at Bet Online, don't blame us if it doesn't happen. This is just for fun. We're throwing it out there to have some fun. So again, this is Nara Wang. You're listening to the Everything USC podcast on the Believe Podcast Network. And if you enjoy listening to this show, you can catch it wherever you get your favorite podcasts. And Go to the website as well, Believe.com, B-L-E-A-V.com, on social media, at Believe Podcasts. For me, I'm on Twitter, at Nara Wang Sports, N-A-R-A-W-E-N-G Sports. If people want to catch up with Tim Brando, where can they find you? At Tim Brando on Twitter and at Timmy B on Fox on Instagram. This is Jackie Jamelis, former WNBA and USC women's basketball player, and you're listening to the Everything USC podcast with Nara Wang on the Believe Podcast Network. Fight on. This week, the Trojan football family lost the legend. Sam Bam Cunningham, the 1972 first-team All-American who led USC to a national championship by capping off his career with four touchdowns in the 1973 Rose Bowl game win over Ohio State died at the age of 71. Cunningham was drafted 11th overall in the 1973 NFL Draft by the New England Patriots and played nine seasons for them, becoming the franchise's all-time leading rusher. He is a member of the USC Athletic Hall of Fame, the Rose Bowl Hall of Fame, the College Football Hall of Fame, and the Patriots Hall of Fame. But out of all of his numerous accomplishments, the one that Sam Cunningham is probably best known for is his performance in his very first game as a Trojan in 1970 as a sophomore, because back then freshmen were ineligible to play. Cunningham ran for 135 yards and two touchdowns to lead USC to a 42-21 win over an all-white Alabama squad at Legion Field in Birmingham. 
That game featured an all-African-American backfield for the Trojans, as fullback Cunningham was joined by quarterback Jimmy Jones and halfback Clarence Davis, and the stunning blowout victory is credited with convincing Alabama that integration was necessary if it wanted to continue to be successful in football. The famous line by former Crimson Tide assistant coach Jerry Claiborne was, quote, Sam Cunningham did more to integrate Alabama in 60 minutes than Martin Luther King did in 20 years, unquote. Of course, the story isn't quite that simple, as Alabama's legendary head coach, Paul Bear Bryant, had already recruited his first black player, Wilbur Jackson, who was a freshman in 1970 and thus ineligible for competition. But it certainly changed the views of many in the South when it came to the policies of segregation in sports and is seen as a turning point in college football history. Tim, what do you remember about that game between USC and Alabama in 1970 and about Sam Cunningham? Well, again, for context's sake, let me first begin by saying how awful I felt learning this news because it wasn't that long ago that Petros Papadakis and I were doing the Mountain West Championship game. It was December 18th, I think it was. And Petros's dad, who for many, many years had a very, very popular Greek restaurant here in Los Angeles, and it was frequented by Sam and many a USC star for many, many years. And one of the reasons why Petros knows so much about Southern California high school football and everything Pac-12 is not just because he played and was a captain when he played at USC, but also because he's a legacy player. His dad was a teammate of and a dear friend of Sam's. They were together watching our game and texted us a picture of, and I tweeted it out earlier this week. If you go back and look on my timeline, you'll see it because they tweeted both of us. And so I had the picture already. and. Sam was had John Papadakis on his knee, you know, with the game behind us. I had met Sam a couple of different times at uh, National Football Foundation functions years ago and always found him to be a charming man and uh, an enjoyable guy to be around always, just always in a good humor and certainly loves Southern Cal. So my heart and my condolences and prayers go to his family and all those that are close to him and certainly the the USC community, but I was a 14 year old and Friday, September the 10th, just to put it in perspective for you, Nara, I'm 65 years old. I was not quite 15 on September 10th, 1971. I called my first high school football game with my dad. So this is the 50th anniversary of me becoming a broadcaster calling football. I would do high school football. I quit playing football. And I called games with my dad for the first two years. And then after that, I did high school football by myself while I was still playing baseball in high school all the way through my senior year. So even though I stopped playing football to call it, I was watching every game that was televised like a hawk. Okay, whether it was Chris Schenkel calling the games or Keith Jackson or Al Michaels or whoever ABC had Mike side. Those games were huge, and Sam Cunningham, you know, all, the only teams we would see on TV prior to the 1984 lawsuit brought to the NCAA by the universities of Georgia and Oklahoma, we only got one game a week, and we almost always got the USC-UCLA game and the USC-Notre Dame game, and they were usually fairly close to one another within like two or three weeks, maybe. Sometimes even back-to-back, you might have the game at or around Thanksgiving, you know, in that area of November. So you can imagine how influenced I was watching Sam Cunningham play. That game was a game played at night, as I recall, and Cunningham was unlike any player the talent at Alabama had ever seen at that point. Now, in defense of the historians that are out there saying that it was a stunning victory, it wasn't really as stunning as some might think if you followed Southern football Alabama was in the midst of a bit of a downturn at that time with their program. In fact, the following year, when they played again, Bear Bryant had just instituted the wishbone offense, and it changed his program and got it back on track to winning multiple national championships. But in that particular game, the entire backfield of USC's was so good. Cunningham was the best of that group and dominated it. The Claiborne quote, it has been debated, 
a few times it was attributed to Bear Bryant, and Bear Bryant absolutely said that he didn't say it. Now, Bear Bryant did go to the locker room after the game. That actually did occur. Whatever was said, you know, I wasn't there, so I can't tell you whether it was or it wasn't. And John McKay, rest his soul, is gone now. But suffice it to say that it impacted college football in the southeastern corridor of the country big time. Yeah, Wilbur Jackson had already been recruited. A couple of other, Bobby Mitchell was another that had been recruited at that time to Alabama. But they were not playing yet because they were freshmen. And the freshman rule changed in 1972, a couple of years later. But without question, because it was an intersectional game with two powerhouses, it was one of those moments that everyone was talking about. And the relationship between McKay and Bryant was very good. And Bear, without question, was working really hard towards desegregating the South and making sure that he got some big-time talent. He was losing talent in his own state to HBCUs like Mississippi Valley or Alcorn or Grambling or Florida A&M. He lost unbelievable talent to Michigan State. Duffy Darty in the, the late 60s had players like George Webster and Bubba Smith who were from the South and migrated up to Michigan to play their football. They weren't comfortable African-Americans playing at SEC schools. They didn't feel that they were wanted. So this was that crystallized moment where you knew things were about to change, but this moment was one that sort of put an exclamation point on the fact that they would indeed change. And Bear Bryant gave notice to everyone that he knew that there was a talent discrepancy within his program and felt that all of the SEC in time would recognize that and make some changes. You know, I'm asked this many times because as a young man growing up in Northwest Louisiana, there was no doubt in my mind what was going on when busing began in middle school. I was playing on an all-white city championship basketball team in the eighth grade. And when they closed one of the African-American schools that were junior highs, they call them middle schools now, but junior highs, we went from seven through nine in junior highs and we went high school 10 through 12 and our ninth grade team got all the players from the predominantly black basketball team that had also won city in their district. So our coach forced us to play at our first practice in the ninth grade in basketball, forced us to play against each other to let the guys, I mean, we were a city championship team. I was a starter. I was a shooting forward and a starter. And we played this scrimmage basketball game. And let me just say to you, Nara, when that game ended, I knew I was going to be a first baseman and a pitcher once I got to high school. There would be no more (laughs) basketball in my future. So I lived through the Remember the Titans era. If you watch the movie, Remember the Titans, I lived it. But as a viewer of it, as a broadcaster of it, and as one who played, and we even had some black players in baseball in high school and we had never had that before it was the first integrated team in my high school in 1972 and we had just won the state championship in 1970 I was just so happy to make the team as a sophomore and it never dawned on me as a player what was going on you know 20 years later the strength and conditioning coach for the Houston Rockets for years Robert Barr is a black guy and I was calling an NBA game a playoff game between the Rockets and the Portland Trailblazers in 94. And Robert came over to talk to me and we were discussing this. I said, well, what was that like? And he said, well, if you were on the team, it was fine. And, you know, as a kid, when you're playing, you're just not as aware of what's going on socially around you, at least not in that particular era. We weren't, we lived in a vacuum almost of just, if you were on the team and you were playing ball, that's all that really mattered. It took me probably I don't know, 10 to 15 years removed from playing high school athletics and American Legion ball. And, you know, I had played all sports until I got to the uh, ninth grade. But those moments watching players like Sam Bam Cunningham in football, at college football levels, knowing that I wanted to be a broadcaster, which I did. I just started the next year in 71. You knew 
when you are watching it, oh my God, this, we're seeing the game change before our very eyes. And it's amazing to think that I, I went through that. You know, I never thought much about the Jim Crow South or the political ramifications, but I did think a lot about, oh my goodness, look at the level of play, how much better it is. And no sooner than Sam Bam Cunningham and USC brought that entire black backfield into Alabama, we started seeing great black players at virtually every skilled position other than quarterback within the next handful of years. Condridge Holloway was a black quarterback at Tennessee just a couple of years later. So it was an immediate, for those of us that were alive at that time and that loved the game, the impact was seemingly immediate. Now, I'm not, again, suggesting that it, that had to happen for that to happen because players had already been recruited that were of color, but they just did not become eligible yet. But they were only being recruited at about that time. You know, it was not happening in 1967 or 68. It wasn't until about 1970 that that was really going on at schools in the South. And it, it was only happening at a few places. So the timing of Cunningham and USC's blowout win went a long way in having a dramatic, immediate impact on the way not just Alabama, but all Southern schools viewed themselves in the short-term future. It's great to get your perspective as someone who grew up in the South in that era, and I think it's exactly what you're saying, that it may not have been the only thing that made change happen, but it was definitely a catalyst for change in the South in football. So we send our thoughts and prayers to Sam Cunningham's family. He survived by his wife and daughter and three brothers, one of whom a lot of people know, Randall Cunningham, the former NFL quarterback. So our thoughts and prayers go out to his family. And I know we're kind of seemingly ending the show on a little bit of a bummer note, but before I let you go, Tim, as I mentioned in the open, you're a member of the Louisiana Sports Hall of Fame and a proud native and resident of that state, and we know that it was hit a couple of weeks ago by Hurricane Ida, Category 4 hurricane that was so strong that remnants of the storm caused severe flooding in the northeastern part of the United States. The only storm to cause more damage to Louisiana was Hurricane Katrina in 2005, and we all remember how devastating that was. So I just want to give you a quick moment here to give your perspective on how things are going in the aftermath of Hurricane Ida. Well, we'll take all your prayers. I was very fortunate to live at the northwest corner of the state of Louisiana, so the eye of the storm was far to our east and much further south. It actually tilted more towards Mississippi as it made its track through the Gulf South, and then up the eastern seaboard. So we were very fortunate where we were. We had more in northwest Louisiana during Katrina and the contributing hurricane, which came right after that, Hurricane Rita, which was right when the levees broke in New Orleans. You know, what happened in in south Louisiana and specifically in New Orleans was more of an engineering dysfunction than it was the eye of a storm doing damage. The eye of Katrina actually hit the Mississippi Gulf Coast, so New Orleans was to the west of it, and even though it was devastating, it wasn't as devastating as Ida. Ida hit right smack dab at Grand Isle, that's just south of New Orleans, and came right up through the city. And in many ways, the wind gusts were even stronger, up to 152 miles per hour. My statistician and content coordinator, Scott Alexander, lives in New Orleans proper and it took a week for him to get power. It was, they were more prepared for it this time around than they were for Katrina, but it was no less devastating for those that were affected. And we'll take your prayers. You know, we will. Now, it's a resilient area. It will build back up. In fact, I'd say it's already in a better position, you know, 10 days, 13 days out than we were after Katrina and Rita back in the 06 year. And I I will tell you that Moving forward, I think that uh, the good news is we did find out that the levees and all the money that was spent on making sure those were stronger, that they would not be breached, came through fine. It did have an impact on college football, though. You know, Tulane was uprooted. They've been operating out of and still are operating out of Birmingham over at UAB. Played pretty well at Oklahoma, even with that problem. LSU uprooted and went to Houston. 
before they came to UCLA. Listen, that had nothing to do with the dominance that UCLA had. I'm not going to take anything away from their accomplishment by beating LSU, but it's definitely had an impact on a lot of the schools in the early season, but it's not uncommon. We've seen this happen many times before that time of year in Gulf states where it's either Florida or Miami or LSU, sometimes the Alabama schools too, because the Orange Beach area right there in the Florida panhandle is also on the Alabama coast as well. But we, uh, we appreciate your prayers and your thoughts and the state of Louisiana will bounce back. It always does. I appreciate you giving me a chance to speak to it. Of course. And like you said, everyone is sending their thoughts and prayers to your home state. And I'm glad I was able to hear your perspective on that as well. So, Tim, I know a little bit of a downer note to end it, but we're looking forward to having you on the call with Spencer for Stanford hey. USC on Pac-12 After Dark on Fox Saturday night. Yeah. And I've gotten a little lesson from you before I even meet with Tim Tesselon on Malapai. <laughs> there you go. Perfect. I've already got my, my phonetics taken care of on Malapai. So I'm, I'm ahead of the game in my homework for tomorrow. <laughs> there you go. Always enjoyed talking to you. And so for my guest, Tim Brando of Fox Sports, I'm Nara Wang. Thanks for joining us for episode 36 of the Everything USC podcast presented by Bet Online on the Believe Podcast Network, Los Angeles' number one sports podcast network, the only place with the show for every team in L.A. and much, much more. We believe in our teams. Do you believe? And like I end every show, please remember to Fight on. Thank you for listening to Believe. You can show support to your host by subscribing to the show and giving us a five-star rating on your preferred platform. Check us out at Believe.com and search for B-L-E-A-V on YouTube.